Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome and thanks very, very much for joining us today. I just got off the Skype phone with Jeff Wasserstrom to talk about his new book, Eight Juxtapositions, China Through Imperfect Analogies from Mark Twain to Manchukuo. This came out with Penguin Random House in 2016. And as you'll uh, hear us talking a little bit about in the moments to come, it's part of a series called China Specials, um, which includes actually a number of really great little books um, that are really great to read, to think with, and uh, potentially to teach with as well. So what the book does, as the title kind of advertises, is it uses eight unusual, unexpected, um, disorienting juxtapositions in order to raise some important points and to sort of rethink some important elements of the uh, really major transitions that have happened and transformations that have happened in China since 2008. And you'll hear us talking about this in the moments to come. Now, one of the things that I really um, appreciate about this book is that um, it's both Uh, on the one hand, um, extraordinarily easy to read and a pleasure to read if you know nothing about China. And it's also really enlightening if you come to it as a sort of China specialist, as someone who reads a lot about China, writes a lot about China, does research on China. It's also, and really importantly, a book written by someone who takes writing really seriously and uh, really pays a lot of attention to that craft. And so what that means is that it really is a pleasure to read, um, as well as something that I, I personally took a lot from. So if you're interested in modern China at all, um, if you're interested in how to think about contemporary China in the world, pick up a copy of this book. It's small. It, you can fit it in your bag or your pocket. Um, you can sit down on the grass and have a picnic and read it, um, or you can assign it to your students. And with that, I will let you get to the interview itself so that you can hear um, all of the great things that Jeff has to say about it. As ever, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for your support of the channel, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Jeffrey Wasserstrom about his new book, Eight Juxtapositions. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Jeff, and thanks so much both for writing a really, really interesting and engaging and I think quite inspiring book for us to talk about today and for making time to talk about it. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's a great pleasure to do this. So, Jeff, let's start out with the big question that's become traditional for the podcast, and that is, how did you come to the field? What brought you specifically to the study of modern China? Well, there were different things that that, that brought me here. Um, one thing was I grew up wanting to be a teacher of some kind, and I grew up being very interested in history. So um, it was fairly natural that I ended up wanting to become a teacher of history. The question of which country's history was more wide open. Um, I'd initially become fascinated by European history, particularly British history. I lived in England when I was about 10 and 
just started memorizing the names of the kings and queens and started reading historical novels that were set in um, early Britain or in ancient Greece and Rome. So that that was kind of when I got bit by the the history bug. Um, by the time I got to college, I was I went to Santa Cruz, which was an ultimate liberal arts kind of public um, university at that point. And so I just dabbled. I took classes in all sorts of things. And one of the classes I took was a Chinese history class that um, got me hooked in part because the readings included a Judge D mystery story, one of these Robert Van Gulick wonderful mysteries. And I was I was um, I was then and I still am. Um, uh, a fan of detective fiction. So, you know, here I was being required to read a, a mystery story. And I was also exposed to the writing of Jonathan Spence, who is a stylist who um, I immediately took to and have always admired. And a book by um, Frederick Wakeman, Strangers at the Gate, a wonderful storytelling based um, book uh, dealing with, with the opium war. And I would eventually um, study with, with Wakeman. I had no idea, of course, at the time, but, the readings were really compelling. So I was interested in China uh, from that. It still could have gone either way. I could have gone into another uh, field of history, but I I started learning Chinese. Um, I thought I would have a chance to go to China, and this was in the late 1970s as part of a friendship trip. I dropped out of that trip, but I stuck with the language, which um, Santa Cruz taught relatively early. And then the final piece of this puzzle, two two final things. One is I was always interested in the history of revolutions and upheaval, and China had plenty of those. Um, so I was interested in, in that. And I also had a kind of pragmatic streak. I, when I started graduate school in the early 1980s, not having been to China at that point or anything like that, but I thought that I probably wouldn't be able to get a job as a history professor because there was, um, a job crisis in the humanities, which there has sporadically been ever since, and even more so now. Uh, so there was a, pragmatic side that said, if I get a PhD in the study of uh, some kind of history and then can't get a job as a historian, what kind of um, country could you study where there might be other things you could do with a PhD in history? So all those things um, in different measure led me to um, get the PhD in Chinese history. That's great. And it's really interesting to hear about the ways that it seems like an interest in and a kind of draw toward really thoughtful examples of the writerly craft, right? The craft of the writer were part of this formation because you can absolutely, or at least I as a reader can absolutely see that coming through in the book that we're talking about today. This is very much um, the book of a writer and not just of a historian of China. And I really appreciate that. And I, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk about that. Sure. And I think, and I think I've, I've started to identify more, I repress that sort of uh, writerly side initially you have to with a dissertation that can't be the focus of it and even being trained by somebody who put great store in storytelling as as Fred did there was still an idea that the dissertation had to be a it, to some degree kind of social scientific about proving things not just about telling stories and over time though I think there's been um, more of an engagement with the storytelling side of history that drew me uh, to the discipline in the first place. So the book that we're talking about today, its full title is Eight Juxtapositions, China Through Imperfect Analogies from Mark 
Twain to Manchukuo. Okay, so early in the book, you talk about a student radio show in Sweden that shaped your thinking about what's happening in the book and might have formed a kind of seed for what we're going to be talking about today. So can you maybe take us into at least your sense of the genesis of the project by talking a little bit about that moment and kind of how you came from that moment to um, the book in the form that we have it here? Sure. I, I went to Sweden um at a time when one of the main things I was interested in was human rights debates between China and the United States. And that was what I was going to be talking about um, at the Swedish university. And I was invited to be on the student radio show. And I was preparing myself to talk about the differing ways that China and the United States approached human rights issues um, to, to talk about, in fact, that both both countries thought of thought of themselves as thought of certain packages of human rights as being particularly important. The U.S., because of our history and because of the revolution um, that brought us into being, there's a tendency to put a lot of emphasis on freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And in China, in part because of the religion that brought um, the current government to power. Uh, there was at that time, this was uh, a while ago, a lot of emphasis on social and economic rights. And, and the UN Universal Declaration has both kinds of rights um, extolled, but that the debates were often over which part of the human rights package you focus. So I had this idea of China and the U.S. being very different when it came to human rights. And um, I had reasons to think that China's human rights record was much worse. But I also had a sense that there were similarities between China and the U.S. in the sense of privileging some some parts of the human rights package above others. What um, was so important about that radio interview uh, to me was that the interviewer immediately began by uh, by turning over my um, my approach in my head by saying that she was really wondering if when it came to my presentation, I would be talking about the big thing that from a Swedish point of view, China and the United States had in common about um, human rights. And she made it clear that she didn't mean the divide between social and economic rights and, and um, religious and, and civil rights. What she had in mind was that we were two very big countries, two of the only significant countries in the world that still had the death penalty. Mm. And that kind of shifting of perspective of thinking that you could place China and the United States together um, in a totally different way than I had been thinking about putting them together um, was, I thought, very revealing. It reinforced one thing that I'd been thinking about, which was that every country had a distinctive way of kind of ordering from greater to lesser importance the things that were in a kind of comprehensive human rights package. And that um, for Sweden, way up at the top was the kind of right to life in the sense of not executing people. Um, and yet, in another way, by juxtaposing China and the United States in that way, um, I started to see new things about each of them. And, and I realized that it fit with something I'd been interested in, in other kinds of totally different kinds of events, whether comparing revolutions or not, of saying, what do we what do we gain from putting um, people, events, or countries side by side in ways they often are put side by side or putting ones that aren't usually put side by side together and could kind of shake up assumptions? Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and you actually talk about this 
in the introduction is one part of the twofold premise of the book that um, unexpected juxtapositions can actually help us understand things. And we'll talk a little bit in a moment about what they might um, be able to help us understand specifically. That's the other major focus of the book or major premise. So before we get there, though, let's talk a little bit about the form of the book and the series that this is part of. This is um, so my copy here is this completely tactilely satisfying little paperback that came out with a series called China Specials from Penguin. So for you, what brought you to this series? And can you talk a little bit about that fit between the project as you've written it um, and the China Specials series of Penguin? Well, first of all, I didn't set out to write this book. It's what I think of as an accidental book. It's something that I've just been writing uh, short commentaries um, pretty regularly for about the last 20 years. And um, in 2007, I brought out a, a book called China's Brave New World and Other Tales for Global Times that bundled together a group of those commentaries up until um, 2007. And it struck me that I had been doing um, enough of these since then that maybe there was another small book um, to be uh, to be created out of that. And I started thinking about I, I knew this would be a very small book. Um, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on it because I was I was deep into another project. But I, I felt that some of the commentaries really um, had. Um, stood up well enough over a few years, and I was excited about the new ones I was writing, that I wanted to get them out in a way other than the the online places I was publishing um, the commentaries, especially the Los Angeles Review of Books, which was where a lot of the pieces in, um, in the book began. So I started thinking about, um, and I started looking around and noticed that there had been a burst of interest in very short books. And so I started taking note of, of which um, publishers had, had brought them out. I'd been thinking about the desire to write a very short book since seeing the Oxford University Press very short introductions, mm -hmm. which I really love. And they're these tiny books, much like the one you have in your hand, that you can sort of slip into a back pocket or read on a subway or something like that. And then just by... Um, by happenstance, really, a former student of mine from Irvine um, had become a friend and was working with Penguin and in China. And I knew that Penguin had this series of specials coming out that were these tiny books. The first ones that I'd become aware of were dealt with World War I in Asia. Um, they had one on the... Um, on a specific battle that um, took place. It, these had come out in um, when the centenary of World War I was being marked, mm -hmm. and they fit a kind of niche market, particularly the kind of thing that expats in Asia might read, um, that maybe there wouldn't be enough of a sort of a big book on Asia and World War I. World War I wasn't, wasn't kind of central to Asia the way World War II, and there are books about World War II in Asia that have been coming out, but these were small slices of things that, um, that that went in that direction. So I thought of that as short books, but I didn't know that that this would would fit in with it because unlike those that take one kind of topic and go through it, um, this was this was bits and pieces. Uh, I also saw one book in that series. Actually, um, Chen Mengfei, my friend who's working there, sent me a copy to when we began discussing whether my book might fit for that, which was a, a little book. 
again on a centenary, but this time on the centenary of Ezra Pound's um, uh, poems about China and inspired by China. Again, a, this was a small topic that you know would have a niche audience, but you could imagine um, the same kind of person who spends uh, a couple of hours in a really long reading a really long New Yorker piece on a specific uh, subject reading that kind of book. And that began a series of conversations. Would, would it be possible to do one of these that had this multi-part format as long as the whole thing stayed, um, stayed short. And I was in dialogue with Meng Fei and she put me in dialogue with another uh, of her colleagues, Imogen Liu, who really began to then shape the, the final product. In part, I didn't begin with eight, um, juxtapositions um i i I think i sent her 12 or so and she said these are the the ones that really seem to hang together for me and together um with a lot of a lot of editorial input the book began to take the shape it did and the individual commentaries became quite different in some cases from the original on which they were based in part with her prodding um from the editing and she got me to write an introduction, which I hadn't really thought about doing beforehand. And she very cleverly um, nudged me to do more work on the book than I originally expected I would want to do at a time when I had other things that I was behind on, but never making any one suggestion so daunting that I would give up on the project. So I think that's one of the things that a good editor does is keeps sort of um, – pushing you to want to do more rather than demanding you do more, but occasionally then demanding that you do something. That's such a, that sounds like such a positive experience um, that I imagine that, like me, a whole bunch of listeners now are going to be wanting to write for this series <laughs> and have that experience. Okay, so let's get right into the book. As I mentioned before, um, you set out in the introduction this twofold premise of the book, and we'll get to the second, but let's start with the first. Um, as um, in the words of the book in the introduction, it's more important than ever to have what you call illuminating lenses through which to view the People's Republic of China, and especially lenses that help us make sense of the ways that the PRC has changed since 2008. And you talk about, um, and, I, and I won't ask you to talk too much about this now, because we'll talk about this over the course of the rest of the hour, but you talk about some of the things that have happened since 2008 um, that, that kind of fall under this umbrella. Um, the umbrella movement, exactly mm-hmm. one of them in 2014, the Olympics, the Sichuan earthquake, unrest in Tibet, the 2010 Shanghai Expo, the 2009 riots in Xinjiang, the 2015 stock market dive in Shanghai. This has been an extraordinarily uh, busy and sort of transformative period. Now, as you mentioned, and this is the second major premise that you set out here, unexpected juxtapositions can help us understand these changes. Um, And you talk here a little bit about juxtaposition as a method. Now, one of the things that seems really important for us to cover uh, very, very briefly here um, is kind of one of the reasons why imperfect analogies or unexpected juxtapositions are important in this particular context. And you mention um, that these unexpected um, puttings together of things can actually challenge two important, um, prevalent, and quite uh, I think damaging potentially tendencies um, that hinder, um, as you put it here, a fuller understanding of modern China. 
One is the sense that China is somehow incomparable. It's somehow so exotic that you can't compare it to anything else. And the other is a sense that only certain kinds of comparisons、um, are kind of、uh, can be drawn, should be drawn. Did you want to speak a little bit to these tendencies and to the kind of promise of this unusual juxtaposition and shaking this up? Sure, and I think I think one thing is probably probably worthwhile is to locate my own、um, bio- autobiography. Sure. In the sense of being of a generation that.、Um, Grew up during the Cold War, and so there was one clear category in which you put China. If you put、uh, contemporary China in a category during、um, the much of the Cold War, it was as a communist country, and the presumption was that the places that you most naturally compared it with were、um, other communist party-run countries. And、um, the other category, when I was trained as、um, a China specialist in the 1980s. Was that、um, China was part of this thing called East Asia?、Um, the expectation was that the other countries that mattered, if you were a China specialist, were particularly Japan and Korea, possibly Vietnam. That you had this idea of a coherent region、um, that Fairbank and others of the, the Harvard School、um, had, including Vietnam and some others. Uh, didn't have, including Vietnam. You can think of it as places that were influenced by Confucianism. I thought one clever thing that I heard somebody say at a, a workshop in Seoul was, "You can think of it as the places where people eat with chopsticks."、Um, but in some way or another, these are places Chinese characters have have some balance.、Um, there are certain reference points in the past. So the idea was for me that, in a sense. You, if you were looking for comparisons, you would naturally look to either Russia and the Eastern European Soviet bloc, or you would look to、um, Japan and Korea. And so there was always a sense that there might be、um, comparisons that you would make, but there were quite、uh, specific places you would look. And increasingly, in the last、um, dozen years ago, or a dozen years or so, people are, have begun to think about. Other kinds of comparisons at different points. So, in some ways, there already is a、um, a larger set of comparisons、um, floating around. For example, I was never encouraged to take a course on India when I was in graduate school,、mm-hmm. but now there's been a certain there India-China institutes or places that deal with comparisons between China and India. There's a sense of、um, China being one of the BRICS—that's yet another kind of、um, putting it beside other countries based on the size of the economy.、Um, so, a variety of things that comparative frames. At the same time, this idea of China as singular, as China as incomparable, has a very long history and has a kind of renewed power in a time when China seems to be defying、um, expectations. Of、um, in 1989, defying the expectation that there was something called a Leninist extinction underway by the Chinese Communist Party, proving itself to definitely not be、um, going extinct, at least or fighting against it as much as possible. So there was a sense in which I think,、um, having come out of a period when there were quite specific kind of comparisons, and then starting to think about very different kinds of comparisons, while at the same time having this. Notion of、um, singularity still being there,、um, 
all, all fit together in my mind and thinking, how can we, how can we get beyond this? And it seemed to think about provisional or clearly um, incomplete and imperfect analogies and not choosing any one comparison, but thinking about, well, what, what is it about China that we're trying to understand? And for that effort at understanding, which is the um, comparison that might be most productive was um, something that evolved. But I actually had that had a similar process of evolution that played into this um, with the fact that the city I've been most interested in um, in China has been Shanghai for a long time. And a lot of my work is focused on that. And actually, with Shanghai, too, you have this double sense that people are always are often have often been comparing it, placing it into one or another category, and also insisting on its singularity. And there too, I think some of the the first wrestling I did with imperfect analogies was um, with Shanghai um, being compared to other places, and no one comparative frame really helping, but multiple comparative frames that you use depending on which period, depending on which issue you wanted to address, uh, helped get you out of the box of thinking of it as either comparable to just one other kind of place or as utterly incomparable. So I think one of the questions that you just posed, what is it about China that we're trying to understand, is perhaps a really good way to bring us into, if not all, at least some of the juxtapositions um, that you offer us in the book. So let's actually dive right in. Okay, so the first chapter, Tibet and Manchukuo, and I think I'm going to take your question or the question that you just raised as a kind of um, lens through which to view what's happening here. Okay, so in this chapter, um, you begin with the 2008 protests in Tibet, and you bring us into, at least early on in the chapter, a comparison between two Olympic Games, Tokyo 1964 and Beijing 2008. And the chapter goes on to draw comparisons between Japan's Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere and China's policies toward Tibet and Xinjiang. So let's take up this question. What is it about China that we're trying to understand through this set of comparisons? Well, one thing I think is to understand a part of, um, of a central myth of the Chinese uh, Communist Party, which is that when you look at a map and you see the People's Republic of China, all parts of it um, are sort of naturally part of an enduring um, an enduring China, and that that China has this kind of um, enduring size that allows it to be very big without having to wrestle with the notion of being an imperialist power that grew large through processes of um, conquest and incorporation. And another part of that central myth is that um, the antithesis of everything about um, China now, or the the nadir of um, the current Chinese project, was when Japan invaded China and upset what is often thought of as a kind of natural order within East Asia of China being... Um, the most most important power and Japan being being a minor one. So there there are flaws with each part of um, the kind of story that um, that the Chinese Communist Party tells. But I think one of the ways to get at just how different 
these things can look is if you if you examine how exactly Beijing defends and understands its policies toward Tibet and toward um, and toward Xinjiang by as well, and how similar the kind of rhetoric can sometimes be to the rhetoric that Tokyo used to explain its possession for a time, or at least its um, its exercise of tremendous influence over Manchuria, a part of um, the, what, from Beijing's point of view, would have been a natural part of China. But um, Tokyo explained in the 1930s that it was modernizing that place, that it was bringing um, roads and other trappings of um, the modern world to an underdeveloped frontier zone that was in need and, and that would have um, people who would presumably welcome this kind of being being brought forward in time. And that's very similar to what um, what Beijing says about um, Tibet and Xinjiang and efforts um, there. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the chapter, um, you also draw another comparison and you ask us to put side by side George W. Bush and Hu Jintao. So it's another really interesting um, kind of a jarring comparison that I think is also really productive to think with. So there, did you want to speak to that at all? Well, I was just going to say, you know, one, one thing I should, I should mention is that a lot of these juxtapositions, when I come up with them, they come from reading uh, people who are making arguments outside of what seems to be the mainstream and doing certain kinds of um, flips or changes. So both Howard French and Pankaj Mishra, people I read, um, reportage and other writings on um, on Asia quite a bit, including China, had brought up this kind of notion of um, forcing modernity down um, a population's throat is often something that that they reject. And this this was something that um, they either said or implicitly could work with the Tibet and Manchukuo thing. But at the same time, I was I was also very struck by the power of John Dower's writings about um, Japan. And one of the things that he did after 9-11 was um, when there was a lot of discussion in America about 9-11 somehow being like Pearl Harbor because of threat coming to um, our land, what Dower wrote about very, very powerfully was that if you looked for a Japan parallel to the period around 9-11, there was a much clearer parallel to the thinking within the Bush administration about um, the occupation of Iraq. And um, so he, he brought that in into a, into a certain way. So I ended with the discussion of um, imagining uh, Hu Jintao and um, George W. Bush meeting. And, and um, though they wouldn't have talked about this, they would have only talked about sports, talking about what kind of quagmires you can get into when you've got a population that just refuses to be welcoming you as liberators the way you really think they should. And Hu Jintao might have um, Tibet and Xinjiang on his mind while um, Bush would have Iraq. So as we move into chapter two, we move into another really interesting and productive, unexpected juxtaposition. This chapter takes us into two anniversaries in 2009, a 60th anniversary in Beijing and a 20th anniversary in Berlin. Now, you take this conjunction as an opportunity to reflect on um, what you call the perils or the irony of prediction. And the way this works um, is actually really interesting, right? The, um, the chapter makes the point, 
one reason that the Berlin Wall fell was that it once seemed so likely to endure. The world's, and this is in the, in the words of the book, the world's disbelief in radical change emboldened the participants in the European upheaval of 1989. This is an argument that someone in the chapter makes. In um, a sort of in juxtaposition with this, one reason the CCP endured to celebrate 60 years in power, in the words of the book, was that it once seemed so likely to fail, and as a result, made decisions that helped it avoid that fate. So what does this juxtaposition, um, what, is, what is it about this juxtaposition um, that helps us understand something important about China? I think that the most important thing to understand, and again, you know, I'm not, I'm not the only one to, to argue this, is to think of the Chinese Communist Party since 1989 as being keenly aware of the fact that entities very similar to it have been dying off. And to take a very diagnostic approach to staying in power, to try to look at the ways in which um, communist parties have fallen and to look at, in particular, at how the Soviet Union imploded and say, how can we alter the equations that led to that result in ways that we can still live with and will, will make us clearly different? but that will keep us from facing the same kind of perfect storm of problems that brought them down. And, you know, diagnostically, like like um, a, a doctor in a ward where you have a, a set of, of patients with similar um, symptoms and you give one set of treatments and some of the patients start dying, you start altering the treatments you're giving the ones who, who live on. And I think that's a useful way of thinking about um, about the Chinese Communist Party, that it realized that there was a major challenge to it in um, Tiananmen. It didn't come out of that thinking, okay, we've ridden through that, we're fine. It saw other other communist parties falling. And there too, it said, okay, this should be a wake-up call. Not, Not that we should abandon communist party rule. The one kind of inviolable thing they wanted was to maintain a monopoly on power. But let's see how many other things about the way we engage with our population, um, the economic strategies we, we use, our place in the world. Let's be ready to do a lot of tinkering from there. And the Chinese Communist Party was always, has always been a very kind of experimentally minded um, organization, as some political scientists have stressed. But then it took it to a new level, this kind of um, diagnostic approach to, um, to rule. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Now, as we move from here to the next chapter, we move into a juxtaposition of Orwell and Huxley. So this chapter takes us um, early on into the Orwell versus Huxley debate as it was revisited by a cartoonist in 2009 in a comic called um, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And you mentioned this has gone viral or it it went viral shortly after it came out. Mm-hmm. Now, the comic kind of um, is a way to understand a larger contrast between Orwell's focus in the, in the words of the book on the way governments watch people and Huxley's focus on how order is maintained in part by the things people watch, again, in the words of the book. And you consider here um, sort of which, if, if it makes sense to make that choice at all, Orwell or Huxley is a better fictional lens to look through if one wanted to understand China. 
Okay, so let's go back to our question that's weaving through all of these chapters. What is it about China that we're trying to understand through this this juxtaposition? I think we're what a big thing we're we're all trying to understand is how when I give talks on China, one of the first things is how can China still be communist and be a major consumer of luxury goods, have mega malls? How can it be so capitalist? People are thinking of that as going along with these kinds of things of materialism and such. And in some ways, Orwell was supposed to be the novelist who gave you the key to understand the workings of Communist Party rule. And Huxley was supposed to be um, the novelist who gave you a kind of intimation of what could be most problematic about capitalist um, consumerism going run amok and a kind of setting of uh, hedonism, whereas Orwell was one of a much starker kind of uh, setting. There was more to both writers than, than that, but in a, in a nutshell, you sort of to get at that kind of um, paradox, uh, a paradox of China being both a consumerist place and still run um, by a communist party. And so um, refusing to choose just one or the other and to say that actually there are parts of China now in which it's much more Orwellian than Huxleyan in the way the, um, the state exercises control. Um, again, Tibet and Xinjiang being good examples of that. On many parts of the mainland, there's a mix of this kind of um, playing to people's pleasures, which is how Huxley said um, dictators of the future would stay in power versus playing to people's fears, which is much more um, kind of Orwellian. On the mainland, you saw a mix. And then in Hong Kong, when it initially was brought uh, into the People's Republic of China seemed to be the place where it was above all Huxley. If there was if there was a kind of soft authoritarianism would be the order of the day, uh, like places like Singapore, where you could um, have many things of the sort of um, the spectacle and consumerism that could lead you to forget about um, the kind of hard workings of authoritarian control. And I think one of the really important things about the umbrella movement was the fact that early in it, um, when tear gas was used, it, it there was a sense of shock among the population because this was in part, so by my term, so Orwellian as opposed to Huxleyan, a matter of control, whereas that kind of use of force would not have had the same shock value in um in Tibet or Xinjiang, of course, it would it might even be seen as a as a less severe kind of tactic. So I think this was one where refusing to choose between just ways of seeing it, thinking about mixing elements from these two soft and, and hard forms of authoritarian rule was important. And to think about China not being uh, the People's Republic of China, not being a single place with a single strategy of rule were, was another thing I hoped readers would get out of that, this particular use of the, of the juxtaposition of the two writers. Now, you mentioned early in our conversation um, that you had a particular fondness for Shanghai. And Shanghai does come into this chapter in a really interesting way. You take us into your experience of the 2010 Shanghai Expo as a way to bring some of these issues into relief. Um, did you want to speak a little bit to that and to, to kind of the way that that experience informs some of what you think is important about this part of the book? Yeah, well, I got to 
play with two of the things that I'm um, I'm so obsessed with that um, my children at one point and now some of my students almost have drinking games based on how often I'll mention that. How long will it be until he refers to Shanghai? How long will it be until he refers to a World's Fair? And I can't get away from these. I'm just fascinated by these things. So, so there it was, Shanghai having a World's Fair and getting to um, pull those together. Um, but it was it was also um, I, I do try to be playful through throughout the book. And these are you know, these are dark things to be talking about, dystopian visions. So to be able to to root it in a visit to um, the expo seemed a very engaging way to do it, because expos are about um, entertainment and sensationalism. They've also always had something of a dark side. They used to be places where giant giant guns were displayed as the latest weapons of things of the future. It's a place that you think about possible futures. So there's a good fit uh, for dy- dystopian um, thinking or, but although it's often a kind of bright, happy kind of um, vision of the future. So I got to um, use as a, an example to, to think about what can either seem um, attractive or creepy about the latest technologies, thinking about it with a, um, with a particular Chinese spin, was I started getting messages on my um, Chinese cell phone telling me um, that I might want to and that I might enjoy going to such and such an event that was taking place near where I was on the expo grounds. And at first I thought, how nice. This is maximizing my pleasure in um, – in going to the expo. But then I crossed over to a different part of the expo ground and I got a new text message saying, now that you're over on this side of the river, perhaps you'd like to see X, Y, and Z. And suddenly that slide from a helpful technology to a creepy form of surveillance, they knew exactly where where I was, um, came through. And I started thinking about, uh, as I thought about before, what it means for China to be getting new technologies, in this case, um, cell phones, but there being such limited providers or such state control over the technology that, um, for example, when the state wants protesters to get off the streets because they, they want to move in, they can send a text message to everybody who has a Chinese cell phone that will get it saying, if you don't want to be uh, hassled by the police, it would be a good idea to stop your protest now. They've used this when there have been um, nationalist uh, protests or demonstrations against Japan that the government wants to have happen but doesn't want to get out of control. They can use it to kind of turn on, uh, try to turn on and off um, the kind of spigot of um, fervor, which doesn't always work completely, but with this technology takes the idea of sending messages uh, to the to the populace to a different level. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Now, as we move through the book, there are some chapters and some juxtapositions we won't have time for. There's a really interesting chapter that juxtaposes contemporary news accounts um, coming from Russia or, or about Russia and China in chapter four. And I just want to mark that for listeners, even though we won't have a chance to really talk too much about it. Um, so listeners who are particularly interested in that juxtaposition, China, Russia, um, know that they can go to chapter four and find that. But what I want to bring us to is chapter five. 
Now, this is a chapter called Yuhua and Mark Twain, and it considers two major questions. The first question, what if Yuhua had become the first Chinese author still based in China to win a Nobel Prize for literature? Now, after talking about the controversy surrounding Mo Yan's 2012 Nobel Prize, you talk about your own appreciation for the work of Yu Hua. And then we, we're going to move from there to um, a different kind of juxtaposition. So can you maybe talk about that? Sort of what, um, for you, what's most important for us to understand about what you think is most interesting and important about Yu Hua as a writer here? Well, I've, I'm just fascinated by Hugh Hua as a writer, in part because um, I just enjoy in, enjoy his his fiction and love the book China in Ten Words um, mm-hmm. as a, a window onto China. But I think he defies uh, he shows how limiting certain kind of binary approaches to um, to China can be. For a lot of people who don't pay close attention to China, I think there's an assumption that intellectuals there and creative figures are either stooges who sort of do the government's bidding, um, the kind of Lani Reifenstahl um, notion, the idea of um, Zhang Yimou, who becomes a kind of state choreographer, put it, was, a, was an independently-minded filmmaker and then did these big uh, spectacles for um, military parades and for the opening of the Olympics. Or that at the other end, there's the kind of daring artist who ends up in exile or in prison, or unable to work. And Hua is neither of those things. Hua is um, both somebody who writes a lot of challenging work, things, nonfiction that can't be published um, in the mainland, but continues to live in the mainland and has been a member of the Official Writers Association, despite um, these kinds of challenging works, and writes fiction that um, can be published within uh, within the mainland. So there are many other figures as well who are these in between um, the extremes of sellout and dissident. And yet in the Mo Yen case, there was a desire to figure out which of those two categories Mo Yen fit in. In fact, he didn't fit cleanly into either, though I would argue he was more toward um, the loyalist side and less daring than a figure like Hu Hua, but still Hu, there's a spectrum between them. And I think it's both important to think of that spectrum and also to realize that we don't make the same kind of assumption often about Western writers. And Mark Twain, who happens to be my favorite American writer, was a perfect example of this because there, there were actually people often remember him simply now for um, novels like uh, those featuring Huck Finn and Mark and Tom Sawyer, but there were times when he wrote very bold, very daring um, critical criticisms of American imperialism, and there was some writer um, around 1900 who referred to Mark Twain as the most dangerous writer from the point of view of the White House in America, and yet nobody would have thought that there was this terrible discontent disconnect about him being an establishment figure in some ways um, within uh, the American scene and um, a dissenting figure um, who, who wrote some things that, um, that were very challenging to the status quo. And so I think it's, this is another of the many ways that I think I, I make efforts in the book. I hope to try to normalize China, to try to think about how figures or situations that seem so different there may be less different, and that some of what 
um, pushes us to misunderstand is is to assume that we can squeeze anything into just one of two boxes. That's right. And speaking of squeezing things into boxes, this actually, I think, brings us really nicely into chapter seven, the flat and the bumpy. Okay, so chapter seven juxtaposes two ways of thinking about kind of major global trends. You call one of those ways the Friedman flattening position, and you call the other of those ways the Pico proliferation position. Okay, so for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, um, can you talk a little bit about sort of what are these positions? Why does it matter? And what is about what is it about China specifically that we're trying to understand here with this juxtaposition? Yeah, thanks. That's uh, now I get to talk about a writer I I I, I don't like uh, Thomas Friedman. Um, at least some of, some of his writing. It, it what what bothers me about the world is flat is, which is where Friedman um, flattening idea comes in, is this notion that what we see through globalization is homogenization of a sort that that does away with certain kinds of differences and creates a kind of friction, frictionless, frictionless world. And I contrast that with Pico Iyer, who thinks about the world being knit together in ways that are continually producing new kinds of hybrids and new kinds of difference. And um, within China studies, one of the crucial books for um, for thinking through this for me was uh, Golden Arches East, mm-hmm. which took a kind of common um, object and company that's used to think about homogenization, McDonald's and its Big Mac, um, and talked about how the fact that with McDonald's coming to East Asia, you didn't see... Um, kind of Americanization via uh, what Friedman says, a Big Mac is a Big Mac is a Big Mac. Instead, you saw that Big Macs and McDonald's themselves took on new kinds of meanings within um, within an East Asian context. In Beijing, early on, going to a McDonald's was a way to show that you were a cosmopolitan person, a, city, a citizen of the world. It might be a nice place for two intellectuals to go on a first date. Whereas in the United States, intellect, self-respecting intellectuals do not go to McDonald's on a first date, and they see ordering a Big Mac not as a sign of being cosmopolitan, but quite the opposite. So here, that's part of what I'm um, I'm trying to, to revisit. But the other thing, the specific thing about China is I think when people are thinking about um, China becoming an important force in the world, there's a way of slipping into this idea when China rules the world uh, fallacy, a notion that the future may be a world and they're very kind of yellow peril, red meets red menace versions of this, where we'll all be converted to China's ways. Or there's another thing that says, well, don't worry so much. It may look like um, China's rising, but inevitably there will be a way in which it will just, um, it will have to conform to um, more globally circulating norms. But in fact, I think what you're going to see is what we're already seeing is neither of those things, but something more complicated, um, sometimes worrisome, but definitely more complex and interesting. 
in which some things change. There becomes more connection between different parts of the world, but there also are ways in which this can lead to new kinds of um, new kinds of hybrids, new kinds of things of that kind of proliferation. And one example I give is through senses of time. And that in many ways, uh, with China's incorporation into the global order throughout the last uh, 150 years, you've seen China going by a kind of calendrical time that's much more like um, the kind that was originally in the West and then spread there. When you talk about what year it is um, in China, as in so many places, there's a sense that the year is 2016. Um, there's more importance put on centuries now, whereas in Chinese uh, calculations, there used to be 60-year cycles and so forth. But this isn't just a simple story of, of Americanization or Westernization, because now, in a way that certainly wasn't true when I was a kid, a lot of Americans are aware that the year of the monkey just began. There's an awareness of the signs of the Zodiac, that you even have things like... Um, the U.S. Postal Service bringing out stamps that include um, the the sign of, of the zodiac by the, the the Chinese calculations. So that's just one example, and there are many others. And I think um, we can think about cases that are more disturbing or less when there will be mergings, but they're not going to be um, at the expense of of local difference. Great. Whenever I think of McDonald's in this context, it brings me back to when I was um, studying Chinese in Beijing. And all by, by the middle of the year in this program's IUP, we realized, the students that were in this program, that we were all secretly, when we got homesick, going to McDonald's to get their breakfast sandwiches and not telling anybody because we all felt guilty about it. There was this <laughs> kind of catharsis about Christmas time um, when, when we kind of op- all opened up to each other about this. But I digress. No, it's very common. Pizza Hut never tasted better than in Asia. And then like the Pizza Hut salad bowl wars where you could, that's a whole other conversation. Pizza Hut salad bowl. Okay. Or salad bar rather. Okay. So this brings us to the last juxtaposition. Um, Chapter eight juxtaposes two figures that probably aren't um, going to frequently be put into um, comparison for listeners. And these are the figures of Xi Jinping and Pope Francis. So what this chapter does really, really interestingly is think about the Catholic Church and the CCP in conversation um, with one another. And what I wanted to kind of ask you to talk a little bit about is a moment in this chapter where you talk about a reflection on the School of Athens. And you talk about the ways that reflecting on the School of Athens kind of caused you to rethink the CCP's relationship to Confucius. This is a really, really interesting moment here in the book, and it's perhaps a really nice moment to sort of lead us to our conclusion. So can you talk about that? Um, The School of Athens, Confucius, and specifically, again, coming back to our um, question thread, what is it about China that we're trying to understand here? I'm glad you. I'm glad you you uh, focused on that one part because I think it's my favorite um, part of that that chapter. In part because I think when um, when this the commentaries that are most interesting to me are ones it, when I partly reveal flaws in my own thinking. I mean, it's easy to criticize other people for being too simplistic in their views, but it's it's exciting when you start 
realizing a new way of thinking something that you thought you had 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 down. So while I've always thought that people overestimate the kind of peculiarity of, of uh, certain Chinese phenomena, and I try to look for um, parallels, one of the things that I thought was just completely weird, and I think still is weird at some levels, is uh, the Communist Party sponsoring Confucius Institutes around the world. Um, because when I started paying attention to the Communist Party, it was a it was having this negative view of Confucius. Confucius was not celebrated as a great thinker. He was seen as a feudal thinker who had kept China back. And this was true of the Communist Party um, in Mao's day uh, on the mainland. It was also true of... Um, mainland intellectuals during the May 4th movement before um, the Communist Party was founded in the 19-teens. Um, the idea was Confucian ways of thought um, were the antithesis of the kind of modern way to be modern and Chinese. And yet now we have a position where we have a situation where the Communist Party celebrates Confucius, where um, Xi Jinping um, quotes him, where a quote from Confucius was used to open the Olympics. And it it, it was for me. This just seemed um, this this seemed hard to find any kind of parallel to. So it was interesting. Once um, thinking about uh, the Xi Jinping and the Pope um, analogy, which I first thought of when they first came to power um, at around the same time, and there was a lot of discussion of them both heading a community of about one point two billion people and inheriting a massive bureaucracy that had this kind of big corruption issue that it needed to deal with, the very different sorts of ones of um, in the hushing up of, um, of priests, um, of predatory priests in the uh, Catholic Church's way and the problem of corrupt officials in the Chinese one. Anyway, there were a lot of ways in which initially I thought of Xi Jinping and the Pope um, kind of having fun with this parallel and building on things other people had written about um, the Communist Party and, and the Vatican uh, secretive ways in which you choose the leader with a small group of men behind closed doors and so forth. Um, but in that initial thinking, I, I didn't have any place to make for this kind of the Confucius Institute side of it. And then actually going um, to the Vatican um, during a family sightseeing trip and being struck by while looking at the School of Athens painting, which I know art historians all knew, but I didn't know. I knew about the Sistine Chapel. That's the next thing you see. But I really didn't know anything about this um, painting. And it's fascinating because in it you see a celebration of thinkers from the pre-Christian um, past as well as um, counterparts from the Renaissance. And thinking about this being in a sacred space um, devoted to Christianity and there being space within it for these pre-Christian uh, thinkers, some of whom had some beliefs that the church, at least at some periods, thought were dangerous and out of step with what they were. You saw one way to read it, at least, was the Catholic Church from a certain stage trying to lay claim to all that could be possibly celebrated about the kind of Western tradition. And that seemed homologous to the Communist Party now in China, trying to lay claim to anything that can be celebrated about a broad Chinese tradition, even thinkers like Confucius, who at an earlier time had been seen by the Communist Party as having these very dangerous ideas. 
Well, Jeff, thank you so much um, for taking the time to lead us through so many of these juxtapositions. I wish we had time to talk about so much more that's going on in the book, but we are now at the time um, when we have to wrap up. Now, given the fact that um, there's a whole lot more that listeners will find when they pick up their own copies of the book and we can't be comprehensive here, even so, is there anything that didn't come up in our conversation or that we didn't get to um, that you'd like to mention for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Um, I think we've really covered covered nearly nearly all the things that matter. I, I would just mention the China and Russia one, since that um, didn't come through, that it's something where that's a case of comparing two places that used to be routinely compared, mm-hmm. then stopped being compared because they were seen as going on different tracks, and now seem once more more comparable again. And so it's it's ironic, I think, there was a period when you would have people who studied China who also studied Russia. Then after 89 or 91, it was those were two places you didn't really put together. And now I think um, the latest news I read about China, if I were going to update, I would include things like the latest incidents of quite thuggish behavior um, by Xi Jinping and company toward opponents fits in with what we've come to expect as a kind of thuggish behavior of Putin um, toward journalists who challenge him and things like that. Great. And now that the book is out, uh, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? Well, I'm working on the book that I was supposed to be working on while I was doing these these side projects. I know how that it, goes. It's a, it's a study of the boxer uh, crisis and the boxer rising, but equally and as much the foreign invasion of um, 1900 that crushed the boxers um, and freed the hostages from Beijing and so forth. And it's trying to put this um, much studied set of events into a novel perspective by um, moving around the world and to see how it was understood differently in different parts of the world looking at a set of juxtapositions uh, back to this, how people trying to make sense of it sometimes said it, it's, it's like, it's like nothing we've ever seen before, but it's a bit like something that, um, that we're familiar with and how that led people in different directions. Um, In America, some people thought that the boxers with their invulnerability beliefs were like the ghost dance rising um, participants, the Sioux participants in the ghost dance rising in England. There were people who thought, foreigners held captive in Beijing were like foreigners held captive um, in Lucknow during the Indian mutiny of 1857. And um, in China, there were some who thought the invasion was reminiscent of um, the invasion of 1860. So these different ways, juxtapositions come in, in many ways. A different juxtaposition that will come in is I want to evoke a sense of 1900 as being a time not unlike our own, um, in which there was a sense among many people that the world had suddenly, in exciting but also alarming ways, become more tightly knit together, that there seemed to be trouble breaking out in all different parts of the world. 1900 was not just the year of the boxers, but of the Boer War in South Africa and um, the Tagalog uprising in the Philippines. And there was a sense of... um, things kind of spinning out of control um, that I think is, is very familiar and that there were new technologies on the scene that allowed people to follow events 
in distant places with an immediacy they hadn't had before because then of the telegraph and, and now the internet. So there'll be a lot of um, juxtapositions and um, I get to return to some of my um, topics of obsession. Mark Twain has a place in the book uh, because he was one of the probably the most famous American to have the idea that the boxers were in the right since he they were merely trying to take back control of their own um, their own territory. A World's Fair even comes into um, the picture because the big one was going on in Paris in the summer of 1900 at the same time that armies of the world were gathering in China people from around the world were gathering in what seemingly a completely peaceful way in Paris uh, in 1900. But of course, in Paris, they were also seeing displays of the latest weaponry, the weaponry that was also being put um, to use in Beijing. So there's a kind of um, return to some of the themes in a very different way that show up in eight juxtapositions and that have um, intrigued me over the, the last decade or so. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of that project uh, to talk with us today and uh, best of luck with that. And thanks so much for a great book and for talking about it today, Jeff. It's really been a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure for me. And I really appreciate the care with which you went through the book and the kinds of questions you came up with to get me to talk about. Thanks. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.